Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6, John in the New Testament, chapter 6. Just a note, if you happen to be watching this online, you are watching it Sunday morning, but it's being recorded on Saturday night. But thank you for joining us, and the reason for that is because we have a combined Sunday morning service outdoor at the Band Shell in Port Washington Veterans Park. So um, if you're watching online, I'll just say you're welcome to attend that service, and you're welcome to the 1230 picnic that uh, we are putting on a free picnic, bounce houses, and those kind of things are available uh, for the kids at, uh, at the Bancho at 12.30 is the, is the dinner. In John chapter 6, we are looking at two different kinds of needs that everyone has, and that's basically this. We have felt needs and real needs, if I can call them that. The needs we feel are everything from food and thirst to different struggles that we go through. We um, have relationship needs, we have health needs, we have financial needs, felt needs. We also have real needs, and those are sometimes things that are more deeply known or almost unknown. Uh, Things that we don't realize, but they're real, and Jesus in John 6 is going to address both kinds of needs, because God cares about all kinds of needs, the needs we feel, and he is going to meet, in this passage, he's going to meet a very tangible, real need, the need they had for food. They were hungry on this day, and he's going to give them dinner. But he uses that to point them to their real need, and their real need is for an eternal relationship with him. He's going to talk about the real need for eternal life. Because, in fact, everyone lives somewhere forever. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Everyone lives somewhere forever. And I know that thought lingers in everyone's mind. And if you are, for some reason, not sure where you will be one minute after you die, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here, because that assurance is a real need. But he starts with our felt needs. Um, Jesus supplies felt needs. Let me read verses 1 through 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the north of the Sea of Galilee, that is also called the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? They're going to be hungry. (coughs) He asked this only to test him, to test Philip, for he, Jesus, already had in mind what he was going to do. So let's try to understand the situation. This is happening like 2,000 years ago. It's A.D. 30, 31, during the lifetime of Jesus on earth. It's happening in the nation of Israel by the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is a real place, right? Tourists go there all the time uh, to visit the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus uh, had, had been himself. The Sea of Galilee is about 
one-fourth the size of Lake Winnebago. If we're just trying to visualize it, uh, if you've been up to Oshkosh area, Lake Winnebago, it's about one-fourth of that size. And uh, what this is telling us is that the disciples, Jesus, it says, and the disciples had crossed over the northern or far section of the Sea of Galilee. Now, some of the details I'm going to share tonight are a combination of John's telling of the story in John 6 and Matthew telling the same story in Matthew 14. So we get we put the, put them together and kind of like two eyewitnesses, you get the full story when you, you read them both. So the disciples had gone over by boat, and then it says a large crowd followed them. What was really happening is that they had crossed over from west to east on this covering the same area, basically, that Jesus and the disciples did by boat. But they probably had to run four or five, or walk four or five miles to get from the western side to the eastern side. The western side was the populated side, so the city of Capernaum, where many of the people lived, was on the west side. But now they went to the east side, which was a more isolated wilderness side, and were told in Matthew 14 why Jesus went there. He went there to be alone. Because he had just received the sad news that his friend, John the Baptist, had been executed by King Herod. So he went there really to grieve, but what happens? The crowd followed them, and Jesus cared so much about these people that he put aside his grief to again minister to them. And Matthew tells us he began to heal more of the sick. They came and followed him because he had been healing on the west side. They find him trying to get some private time with his father in heaven. And he has compassion on them and he continues to heal. Did those miracles really happen? I know there's a lot of people in the world that don't think that there is such thing as miracles. But if, if you're a person who ever has doubted whether the miracles of the Bible are real that Jesus did, you have to consider logically what are the options. If the Bible tells us that Jesus did these miracles, then one of three things are true. The Bible's telling, but if it's not true, then one of three things is true. The Bible is a lie. So you can't say the Bible's a good book. If it's telling you that Jesus did these miracles and he didn't really do them, then the Bible's a lie. Or some would say, well, Jesus was doing something to trick them into thinking he did. Well, if Jesus was doing something to trick them, then he wasn't a good man. The only remaining option is that Jesus really was God and really was doing these miracles by the power of God because he was God. A great crowd of people were following because they saw these miracles. I would imagine if you were in that time that a lot of the reasoning of the people was, this is very entertaining to see somebody do miracles, right? And I don't know what all they had to do, but they didn't have Netflix, they didn't scroll through social media, and uh, they didn't have uh, professional sports to watch. Chris Middleton or Giannis uh, have entertained us. But Jesus wasn't entertaining them with a skill Jesus was demonstrating to them that he is actually God. Jesus was like pressing override on natural law. 
He was the one who had created all things. So Jesus is the one who can override something natural like someone's disability. And so he would, there were blind people that he gave sight to. That just doesn't happen. There were sick people that were healed instantly because Jesus can override what is normal. But he did it because he cared. He had compassion. Matthew even spells out that he had compassion on the people, and that's why he healed their sickness. He cares about those needs. In fact, what's interesting is that he even cared that this huge crowd of people was out there, and they were hungry. Verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, one of the disciples, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And then he says, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he's going to do. You see, on the eastern side of the lake, it was an isolated wilderness area. There were no food shops. There were no places to eat. And uh, Jesus realized they were hungry. He, he didn't ask them to follow him. He didn't, in a sense, humanly even want them to follow him, but they did. Their need was not Jesus' fault, and yet Jesus cared. And that's an important thing to realize about Christ is he cares about our problems no matter whose fault they are, even if they are are our own fault. Where will we buy the bread? He had in mind what he was going to do, so why would he ask this of Philip? You see, Jesus was not only ministering to these thousands of people who needed food, he was also keeping in mind Philip, because Philip was someone who already followed Jesus, but needed to trust him, to supply when things seemed humanly impossible. Take note of that too, because that's just the nature of Christ, that he cares about teaching us that he is the one who supplies He knows and cares about those things too. So verse 7, Philip answered him. Jesus asked him this question. So Philip says, eight months wages, some of you may have the term 200 denarii, would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So they were scratching the bottom of the barrel that there's this kid that only has five loaves and two fish. Uh, The term denarii is uh, a typical laborer's wage in that day was one denarii, so uh, 200 denarii would be about right for eight months. And uh, that's a lot of money, and so nobody had money if they even could go, but there was no place to go and buy food without making that journey. Jesus hears the offer of a boy that has enough food basically to feed him and maybe a friend. So some mom was thinking ahead and said, uh, here, you need take some loaves and a couple of fish. Jesus didn't hesitate at how small the offer was. He didn't roll his eyes uh, because Jesus was ready that day to miraculously meet their need. And he met what we could call a felt need that day because the next day he was going to tell them about the real need. So day one 
was an illustration of what he was going to teach them on day two. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was plenty of grass in that place and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Uh, Interestingly, the 5,000 men is clarified in Matthew that it was indeed 5,000 men plus their families, plus the women and children. So we're talking about a crowd that could well be 10,000 or more. They spread out on the grass. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all eaten, had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five loaves of barley left over by those who had eaten. Some kind of miracle had just taken place. To have 10,000 or more people eating from this boy's food. He took some, he gave thanks, and then he distributed it. I'm trying to picture that because Jesus takes these little loaves, and as he breaks off a piece, this loaf does not get smaller. And he breaks off more, and he breaks off more, and he breaks off more. And the loaves keep producing and he, he breaks off pieces of fish, or maybe someone gave him a knife and he's breaking off pieces of fish, and it just keeps on coming. It doesn't diminish in size because what Jesus is doing is he is creating on the spot. He is making bread and making fish, and that's unusual, it's incredible. It surprised the disciples to be sure, and I'm not sure that the crowd quite knew how to even handle what they were seeing happen. Where is all this food coming from? But it's not really unusual at all when you realize who Jesus is. Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus, as part of the triune God, is the creator of all things. Colossians 1, 16 and 7 says, For by him, referring to Jesus, for by Jesus... All things were created in heaven and on earth. And verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he made everything, and he keeps everything fitting together, and and, and the earth spinning, and the sun, and the moon, and the seasons. He does it all because he is the creator. So creating enough food that day for five or 10,000 people was nothing unusual. He made the sun, the moon, the stars. He made the oceans. He made the mountains. He made the animals from which we get the meat for tomorrow's picnic for brats and burgers, hot dogs. I think he created what's in hot dogs. We don't always know what's in hot dogs. But then he also, on day seven, day six, he created man and woman. But he made us distinctly, uniquely different. Because Genesis 1, 26 and 7 says that God created mankind in his own image. That's very important because it means that we are like him. We are not like the animals. And what he meant is we, as human beings, are the ones who think about God. And everybody thinks about God. We, as human beings, are the ones who can communicate not only with each other. We can communicate with God who we cannot see. We were made for a relationship with God, a relationship forever. And that is where Jesus is going 
with this miracle, which is going to be an illustration, the miracle this day, of what he wants to teach them the next day. So he met a felt need of hunger because he cared about their felt need, but also because he cared about their real need for eternal life because he wants to spend eternity forever in heaven with us. Verse 14 and 15, after the miracle's over, it says, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they begin to say, surely this is the prophet. My Bible has the word prophet with a capital because it's a certain passage they're referring to. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The prophet, when the people, the Jewish people saw the miracle that Jesus had just done, they were blown away, but it raised their antenna because they knew their Old Testament. And way back in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18, there is reference to a prophet who's going to come from God that people are supposed to listen to. That was their Messiah. They were expecting God to send the Messiah. And in fact, the people were right. Jesus is that Messiah. But do you notice what kind of Messiah the Jews wanted? They wanted a political Messiah. Jesus, being God, knew what they were thinking. They were thinking if this man is the prophet from God, and his power demonstrates that he was, let's make him king. Why do they want him to be king? Because they didn't like their king. Because their king was Caesar. Because the Romans ruled over Israel, and the Romans were an oppressive government. It was a terrible burden. And freedom from Rome was the felt need of the Jews. But Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth to become a man in order to bring political freedom for the Jews from Rome. Jesus came from heaven to become man to bring spiritual freedom from sin and guilt. And so he understood the felt needs of the people, but here he knew much more important was their spiritual need. And so it says that Jesus goes back to the mountain. Frankly, Jesus snuck out the back. As they're all excited about Jesus, everybody's talking about Jesus, all of a sudden Jesus just disappears. And he goes up into the mountain, it says, by himself. Verses 16 through 21 tell how the Evening ends, and the disciples get into the boat, and they row back across the Sea of Galilee. And it's implied, of course, the people had to walk the four or five miles back, because they've got to go back to their homes. Uh, putting together what it says here and what it says in Matthew 14, we realize that the disciples, they're by themselves. They leave. I don't know where Jesus is. He went up in the mountain. The disciples cross those miles, and during the night... It says there is a rough, the a wind was blowing, verse 18, the waters grew rough. Matthew 14 tells us it's a storm and they're afraid for their life. And Jesus 
shows up and he walks to them on the water. Okay, he's already done the miracle of feeding of the five thousand. Now he's he's already done the miracle of of uh, of healing the sick. Now he walks on the water. Only the disciples get to see that. But he walks on the water, and it terrifies them. And uh, he says to them, verse twenty, "It is I. Don't be afraid." Matthew fourteen tells us that he calmed the storm. He saved their lives so the ship would not capsize. Again, remembering that Jesus can suspend any natural law at any time he wants to because he's the creator. And Matthew 14.33 says that the disciples worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So they're getting it. You are who you say you are. You are God come to earth his eternal son. Jesus knows all the needs that we feel. He fed them food. He healed their sick. He kept the disciples safe in the storm. God has taken care of each of us. We have food and shelter. We have cars and clothes. We have paid our bills, our groceries, If you are well-fed and safe, and you have kids or grandkids that laugh and have fun, we know there is a good God who is taking care of us in so many ways. And he takes us through different illnesses, doctor visits, scraped knees, disappointments, broken relationships. God has done all those things for us over and over again, and it shows that he cares about our felt needs. But we do know that at some point our physical lives will end, and there will be a sickness from which we do not recover, or there will be an accident, or there will be some reason why we all die. So as good as God is in blessing us and giving us all these things, we know that we will all die, but then we remember why we were created. We were created in God's image so that we could have an eternal relationship with Him. This life is not all there is. And so the story does not end in failure. The story ends in glory when we realize that we are made to have an eternal relationship with God. And he is meeting our felt needs all the time to point us to himself and his son Jesus as being the only solution to our real need. Our real need is that our sins would be forgiven so that we can have eternal life in heaven. And so that takes us to day two in John chapter six. You'll notice verse 22 begins with the term the next day. Well, I'll summarize that a little bit for you. The next day, the people actually realized that Jesus wasn't on that boat when the disciples left. So they figured Jesus was still on the east side. And so in the morning, the people make the four or five mile mile journey and they go across the top of the lake again, trying to find Jesus. He's not there. So they come all the way back and they get back to the more populated, get back to Capernaum, verse 24. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, east side, they got into boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, verse 25, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Kind of like, we're trying to find you. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. 
Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, You saw my power, but it didn't convince you spiritually about me being God. You saw my power and you thought, Oh, I can have more food. He will, he will, he will give me food. And, but on that day, Jesus didn't heal anyone. On that day, that second day, he didn't make any more bread or fish. Because on that day, he was not ministering to the needs they felt. He was going to teach them about the real need they had for eternal life. Jesus was saying, I'm not a bread machine. I'm not even just a food giver, money supplier, or miracle worker, healer. Too many times we can hear preachers, maybe on TV, telling us that God will give us health and wealth if we have enough faith, if we pray the right way, or especially if we send them money. Because there's still this idea that God's purpose in our life is about our felt needs, and he needs to give us these things. And Jesus cares about all these things, but sometimes he allows us to experience need and hunger, and sometimes we know people will get sick and eventually die because he wants us to have, he wants to point us to himself as this only solution to our real need. Because life doesn't end with this planet. We are meant to live with him forever in heaven. So he explains why he didn't give them food that day. Verse 27, don't work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal. So Jesus has changed the subject from physical food to spiritual, from felt needs to real needs. And the, the, the people are starting to understand something like Jesus is talking about something else, isn't he? So verse 28, they asked him, what must we do to do, to, to do the works God requires? So notice their question. This eternal life, what do we have to do to get this eternal life? Jesus answered, verse 29, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. He says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, will give you eternal life. They said, what do you have to do to have eternal life? The work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he sent. Is that all? If that's all you do to get to have eternal life, it's really important we know what it means to believe in Jesus. This is actually the first of four times just here in John chapter 6 that Jesus says the only way to have eternal life is to believe in Jesus Christ. Most people who grow up with some kind of religious background are told or they assume that the way you get to heaven is by being good or good enough, or better than others, or more good than bad, or maybe going through certain religious rituals, but somehow if you do enough things, then you have eternal life. But the Bible actually doesn't teach that. 
The Bible teaches that the only way to have eternal life is to believe in Jesus Christ. We need to know what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. Four times here in this chapter, there's about a hundred times in the New Testament where the only condition for eternal life is the word to, to believe or to have faith or put your faith in Jesus Christ. We need to know what that means, but we're starting to understand, I trust, that our eternal destiny does not depend on good things that we do. Our eternal destiny depends upon something good that Jesus did. So that's the basic question you need to be asking yourself is, are you depending on something that you do or something that Jesus did for your eternal life? People are listening, but they still aren't quite grasping it. Um, they're wondering what, what kind of bread would give us eternal life. Jesus said, verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is using bread to refer to himself. I'm like a metaphor for bread. The bread of heaven, the bread of God is he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. They're thinking like Jesus is going to feed them magic bread that makes them live forever or something like that. They're still not getting it that the felt need is not the same as the real need and that the bread that they need is an illustration of the bread they feel hunger for is actually the illustration for the eternal life that only Jesus can give. Then Jesus declared, when they said, so give us this bread that makes us live forever, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. seems the reason that people resist the simple message that we believe in Jesus to have eternal life is because to them it's just too simple, too good to be true, that believing in Christ is enough. But it also tells us that we need to know exactly what does it mean to believe in Jesus. Jump to verse 40. He keeps saying the same thing. For it's my Father's will that everyone who looks to the Son, that's himself, and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, you die and you have eternal life if you believe in the Son. The Jews, verse 41, don't like to hear that. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? They're saying, who does he think he is? He's just a man. He's, he's Joseph and Mary's son, right? How can he say he came from heaven? But in fact, they are wrong when they say that Joseph was his father. Because Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Mary was Jesus' human biological mother. But Jesus' father was God himself. It was a miraculous birth of Jesus, a virgin birth. Because Jesus is the unique individual, and this is why he's the only one that can give us eternal life. He was a unique individual because he was God and man. He is God and he is man. Fully God, fully man. You see, he had to be man in order to die 
on the cross. But he had to be God for that death to pay for our sins. One more passage, a little later, verse 47 and 8. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. We need to know what it means to believe in Christ. Because according to God's word, believing in Jesus Christ is the only way to have eternal life. So if you have any uncertainty about where you would be one minute after you die, let me try to summarize this for you. The way I like to share it that helps it be clear for me is bad news and good news. The bad news is first and the bad news is about us. The good news is second and the good news is about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Bad news number one, all have sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's, it's changing the discussion entirely when it says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory means his standard. So the fact is nobody's good enough. Nobody's good enough to earn heaven. We all fall short. Why? Because we all sin. And the issue is not how much we have sinned. The issue is that we have sinned. If you had a glass of water with one drop of strychnine poison, it'll kill you. It doesn't matter if there's one drop or one teaspoon, or if it's half full of poison, it will kill you. So it doesn't matter how much good water there is, because the poison will kill you. All has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. So we have to understand we're all in bad shape before God, who is holy. Second part of the good bad news. The bad news, number one, is we've all sinned. The bad news, number two, is that the penalty of sin is eternal death or eternal judgment. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And he's talking about an eternal death, an eternal judgment. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Because God is holy, God has to punish sin. You realize his holiness is part of his goodness. If there's a judge down at Ozaki Courthouse who is good, that means he doesn't ignore crime. He actually gives punishments for crime. It is good to be just. God is perfectly good and he is perfectly just, and so he must punish all sin. But God is not only just, God is also perfectly loving. And that's what brings us to the good news. He doesn't want us to perish and be judged. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. Bad news number one, all have sinned. Bad news number two, the penalty of sin is eternal judgment or death. But the good news number one is Jesus Christ died to take our punishment. First Timothy 1.5, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And who is sinners? Everyone's a sinner. So Jesus Christ came to earth, God's Son, God and man. He came to save sinners. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us means he died instead of us. He died in our place. When it, it, it's so easy to say Christ died for us, 
But we, we have to slow down and say, what does that mean? He died instead of us. So God the Father, who is holy and just, was punishing Jesus instead of us. Maybe you've served in the military. You were going at risk of your own life for somebody else. Or you may know someone who actually did give their life for this country. And so they died, so we have freedom. Jesus died to provide spiritual freedom from our sin and our guilt. He was punished by God for our sin. Christ died for us. So if you think about that, that's saying that your sin is already paid for. The punishment for your sin has already been paid. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why Jesus said as he died, it is finished. I finished paying for sin, Jesus was saying. Your sin's paid for. The meal that we're serving tomorrow at the Banshell is a free picnic. There's no way to pay for it because it's already been paid for. The gift of eternal life had a cost. Jesus Christ paid the cost. You and I can't pay the cost. He's the only one who could pay the cost because he's the only one who was perfect. It took a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus was the only one who qualified. So what do we have to do? Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, good news number two. Number one, Jesus died for our sins. Number two, you can have eternal life if you put your faith in Christ, if you believe in Christ. Here's some more synonyms. If you depend upon Christ, or if you trust in Christ. The issue is, what are you depending on? I've talked to so many people who would say they believe that Jesus died for their sins. But if I ask them, so what are you trusting on, trusting in for eternal life? They say things like, well, I try to be a good person, or I go to church, or I help people out, or I give money. Do you see the contradiction? They say, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but if you ask them, what are you trusting in? They're actually trusting in themselves and how good they are. So why did Jesus have to die? The issue is that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You may be acquainted with John 3.16, just a couple chapters before this. For God so loved the world, that's us, the sinners, that he gave his only son, that's Jesus, dying on the cross in our place. Then it says, so that whoever believes in him, Jesus dying in our place, whoever believes in him will not perish, that's hell, but have eternal life, that's heaven. So the issue before us, and maybe before someone who's hearing this, is what are you trusting in for eternal life? I like to illustrate it sometimes with a chair. So one of these chairs, if you look at it, I can look at it, I can, say, I, I can believe that that chair will hold me up. I can say I believe it holds me up, but it's not holding me up until I do what? Until I sit in the chair. Then it's holding me up. And that's what it means to believe in Christ. You can say, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but the question is, what are you trusting in? It's only when you choose in humility to say, I realize I could never be good enough to earn eternal life. 
I am putting my trust in Jesus. He's the one who paid for my sins. I'm trusting in him. So I'm just inviting anyone who hears this to make a decision today to put their faith in Christ. You could express this decision something like this, just to, in a simple prayer before God. And maybe even as I say these words, these are something that you are thinking and you are expressing to God for yourself. Number one, to say, I realize I am a sinner and deserve God's judgment. I realize that Jesus paid for my sin, and I cannot earn it. I cannot earn heaven. So I realize I'm a sinner. I realize Jesus paid for my sin. And so now you can just tell God this. Now I am putting my faith in Jesus Christ alone, who died for my sins and rose again. It is so simple but so profound because you have to come in complete humility to say, I can no longer say I deserve heaven, but I am putting my trust, my faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if you have prayed a prayer like that, we would love to hear from you and visit with you about that. We would love to help you grow in your faith. And I would say welcome to the family because when you put your faith in Christ alone, you become one of his children forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing plan of salvation. Thank you that you're a God who loves us and cares about all the different needs we have. Sometimes it's it's the next meal that we're hungry for. It's the money situation we're worried about or the relationship that is, is, uh, is going wrong. You care about all those needs, but you use whatever needs we feel, sometimes to meet them, but always to point us to yourself because you are the one who can meet our real need for a relationship with you, a relationship you meant to be forever. Thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. I pray that anyone who hears these words will make a decision to put their faith in you to have eternal life. Thank you for what you have provided through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.